Hey, Future Hindsight listeners, if you tune into the show, you expect to hear not just about the problems facing our democracy, you also want solutions. Our partner podcast, Swamp Stories, does just that by diving into political reform with a bipartisan lens. Here, elected leaders, activists, and experts from across the political spectrum discuss issues ranging from slush funds in Congress and dark money to gerrymandering and election disinformation. And, importantly, how to fix America's broken political system and build a better democracy. Find Swamp Stories wherever you get your podcasts or at swampstories.org. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos, and this is the final installment of our season on the social contract. Over the course of the past 10 episodes, we've traced the history of social contract theory, and we've taken that theory and applied it to the pressing challenges we're facing in terms of climate, race, technology, public health, labor, and more. We've talked to activists, economists, philosophers, and faith leaders. And it's been quite a journey. We tend to think, what is the contract doing for me? And of course, that's a legitimate thought. But I would also say, think about what is the contract doing for others? I found that this idea of the social contract allows you to talk about these difficult issues with this notion of reciprocity and mutual benefit. I think that the pathway forward is to create a society where we take care of each other instead of a society where we feel like it's everyone for themselves. And that's going to be necessary in an era of climate chaos. Unless everyone who is or should be party to the contract is being equally protected, then there's a fundamental sense in which the contract itself is broken. We wanted a safety net as long as it was mostly restricted to white Americans. And once the safety net becomes opened to non-white Americans, the political support for that kind of disappears. Technology designers are really the new policymakers. We don't know them, we don't know their names, we don't elect them, but the arbitrary decisions they make in the technology they design dictates the rules we live by. Their ability to make money runs contrary to our interests. The social contract is frayed, and I think there are people who've made a lot of money to try and fray it and sever it. Wait a second, you told me for years, if I worked hard, that I would be okay. But the instant my job is lost for no fault of mine, but due to a global pandemic, you are telling me I'm totally out of luck, that I have no recourse, no options. That was a rupture in the social contract. But it's still there because we're still fundamentally human beings who do want to be connected to each other. On a visceral level, we want fairness. And when we can see that we are doing our part and paying our fair share, and there are these folks who are not, that really makes us angry. Even Republican voters want Jeff Bezos to pay some damn taxes. In the midst of all these challenges, there are some things we can all agree on. In this, the final episode of this series, we're going to take a step back to look at the big picture and to think about how we can be a part of repairing our frayed and broken contract. And if we've learned anything over the past 10 episodes, it's that repairing the social contract is not an individual act. 
In the words of our second guest, Minou Shafiq, it's about reciprocity and mutual benefit. Or, in the words of today's guest, it's about solidarity. Dr. Manuel Pastor is a distinguished professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He currently directs the Equity Research Institute at USC. His latest book, Solidarity Economics, Why Mutuality and Movements Matter, is co-authored with Chris Benner and is out this month as an ebook. Thank you for joining us. So glad to be with you. So I kind of want to start with a landscape view before we move to more specific issues around repairing the social contract. And that is broadly, in your view, what is the American social contract and how would you describe its current status? Well, I think traditionally the social contract in the United States has been the promise that individual initiative would be matched with public support, that people who are willing to work hard would find public schools to support their education, that there would be social security to support them in old age, unemployment insurance, in hard times. So it's been a sense that we owe each other something, a basis on which people and their families can thrive. It's never been perfect. The social contract in the United States has always been driven by racism. The New Deal, one of the sort of high points of the American social contract, was fundamentally racist in its construction. It excluded domestic workers. It excluded agricultural workers, most of whom were Black or Latino. The way that something universal, quote unquote, like the GI Bill got implemented was at a local level so that Black veterans never got the same benefits that white veterans got. The support for home ownership, something we think that's very fundamental to both individualism and public support, the ability for someone to buy a home, establish themselves as a property owner, constrained completely by FHA, Federal Housing Authority, redlining that excluded asset building on the part of, in particular, Black Americans. So we've always had kind of a promise of a social contract. It's always been tattered and shaped by racism in the United States. And I think in one way, it became more and more untenable as more and more people tried to become part of that social contract. When we're thinking about how America can make good on that promise of the social contract or how we might repair it, you've written that it's about repairing our relationship to the commons. What do you mean by that? Well, in this book, Solidarity Economics, Why Mutuality and Movements Matter, we really lift up three key central points that tie into what you're saying. The first is that we've gotten into the habit of talking about the economy as though it's a set of rules given by God or nature that are immutable, can't be changed, we can't do anything about it. We really should be talking about our economy. Because the way our economy functions is on the basis of the rules that we put around the protection of property, the protection of wealth, disproportionate power, etc. And if we recognize that it's our economy, then we recognize the aspects of it that are also about mutuality. The fact that when you really think about which businesses thrive, they are businesses not that exploit their workers and cheat their customers, 
The businesses that thrive are the ones that treat their customers right, treat their workers right, treat their suppliers right, and they're able to do better in the long haul. And in fact, there's a significant body of research that we have contributed to, but so have economists and researchers from the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve and many academic institutions showing that countries and regions that are more equitable, less residentially segregated by race, less fragmented, are actually able to prosper more over time. So mutuality and prosperity can actually go together. When we have a social contract where people feel secure, they're more willing to experiment on starting new businesses. When we've got a sense of mutuality and a social contract where people don't feel at odds, there is more ability to agree on what a growth model might be rather than squabbling about distribution. Now, the third big point in our book, and it ties into your question, is that because some people do benefit from the current set of arrangements, we need social movements to be able to challenge the current constellation of power in order to recognize and realize that mutuality that could bring us prosperity. When you think about the social contract, I know that it's easy to think about it as something that academics talk about or government policymakers design, etc. The social contract was brought to you by social movements. It was the labor movement that brought the protection of workers at the workplace, helped to forge the conditions for social security and unemployment insurance, and helped to establish the minimum wage. It's the civil rights movement that created the idea that lots of people could get into that social contract. It's the LGBTQ movements that have lifted up the issues of marriage equality and made that institution more and more available, that part of our social contract to more and more folks. And so we really can't think about social contracts without simultaneously thinking about social movements. And that, Mila, is the long way of wrapping around to your question. Retaking the commons is about creating social movements that can create a sense of mutuality, a sense of what we hold in common, but also can amass the power to make that real. Let's talk about the stories we tell and the stories that we're told. I think a lot about how progressives seem to find it quite difficult to tell the story of the social safety net in ways that makes it real and tangible. Exactly as you just said, it's often dismissed as something that's academic or philosophical or wonky. You know, is this a story problem? It's a story problem because of how deeply established certain kind of mental defaults are wired in our brain as a result of growing up in a society that so much stresses the individualist part of our story without stressing the social contract part of our story that is also a great part of who we are. You know, there's a story that I sometimes tell when I've given a speech, talked a lot about inequality, social tensions, uh, the American future. And the story goes, and I try to tell it very dramatically, of course, because it's a speech, but the story goes, you know, that I want to tell my story. And my story starts 
with my parents, and in particular my dad, who arrived in the United States in the 1930s with papers that were imperfect. And when World War II came, he was given a choice between being deported or joining the U.S. Army. And he couldn't figure out what to do, so he gave a penny to my cousin Carlitos, who flipped it. And it came up a particular way, and my dad and the penny went to the war, came back safe. And a generation later, his son is a full professor with an endowed chair at the University of Southern California. And when I tell that story, at that moment, audiences get emotional, they begin applauding, and they're really excited. And I say, yeah, that's a great story. It's an American story, and it's the wrong story. It's the wrong story because when it's told that way, it makes it seem as like a individual family and what we call in Spanish ganas, desires, hard work to get ahead. And I don't deny that both of my parents worked hard or that I've worked hard as well. But when my dad, prior to the war, had no papers, he had a union that defended his rights at work. And when he came back from the war, he had a GI Bill. And that GI Bill meant that he, a guy with a sixth grade education, was able, despite that, to go to a local community college and learn about electricity and go from being a janitor to becoming an air conditioner repairman. And our family was able to go from being poor to being working class. And he, because of that GI Bill too, was able to buy with my mom a home in an entering suburb east of East LA here in Los Angeles that allowed him to get the kind of stability that home ownership brings. And I went to public schools because we were investing in them. And when time came to go to the university, there was affirmative action to take a chance on a kid like me that did not fit the typical profile of who was going to the university at the time. Working class Latino kids were not tracked, and I was certainly not tracked to go to the university. So that's the American story. It's a story of individuals, to be sure. And the left makes a mistake by not lifting up that part of the story. But it's a story of the social contract, of the public policies that we put in place for people to be able to succeed, and of the social movements, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the GI movement, the education movement, that makes it possible for all of those public policies I was talking about to be in place. And that's the narrative we need to tell. I mean, if you think about the United States, the baby boom generation, which goes around boasting about how talented it is, was the most coddled and supported generation in America. They got a huge support in terms of the expansion of education, particularly higher education. Their parents got huge support in terms of home ownership. The suburbs were open to them by all sorts of federal highway spending and subsidies that were given to home construction and home ownership. It's a racial outer story built on state socialism for the white middle class. We need to lift up the social contract as part of a key American story. 
you're right. We don't tell that story. We we love to do the, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap story so much. We're addicted to it in a way in this country. We celebrate people who beat the odds when what we should be doing is lifting up people who change the odds, who make the system fairer so that everyone can succeed. Yes. Um, how do you measure success? In many ways, we talk about GDP, but uh, there's also a problem in the way that we currently do our metrics, which I think obfuscates the reality of the social contract policies that you've just described. Well, yeah, and the most problematic of the measures, of course, is GDP, which simply measures the goods and services that are exchanged in the marketplace or purchased or provided by government, things that have a price tag. And, you know, turns out that GDP is pretty sexist because it doesn't include unpaid labor in the home, much of which is done by women. It's pretty racist because you can see GDP rise and you can have whole segments of our population left behind and the measure would look like it's going up when in fact you're really baking in inequality. And it's pretty classist because it doesn't look at distribution at all. So for example, if you were trying to examine what happened during the COVID crisis, when a huge section of our population that was in professional jobs and able to continue to remote work, didn't see anything happen to its income, or if you were Jeff Bezos and you saw your net worth and income rise dramatically as people shifted to using delivery services, GDP went up even though lots of people lost their jobs, lost wages, lost their lives. You got a measure that's sexist, racist, and classist, and that's your big measure of well-being. So there's a moves afoot to try to do a little bit better, to do distributional accounting, to ask what's happening to different groups in terms of GDP, to do more that tries to measure domestic labor, that does more to try to build in equity. For example, my institute, the Equity Research Institute, has teamed up with an organization in Oakland called PolicyLink to create something called the National Equity Atlas. The website is nationalequityatlas.org. And if you go on that website for the top 150 metropolitan regions in the United States, the 100 largest cities, 50 states plus DC, and of course the United States, we look at the changing demography. We look at wages broken down by ethnicity and gender and race, and also by nativity. We look at educational achievement. We look at who goes to high poverty schools by race and ethnicity. We look at environmental exposure to toxics by race, ethnicity, immigration status, etc. And the more we can disaggregate, the better we get a sense of who is doing well and who is being left out of the commons. You know, if you get back to that phrase, the commons, it's not meant to imply the average. The commons is meant to imply all of us and whether or not we are able to share in helping to generate the prosperity and to have the ability to receive some of the fruits of that prosperity. 
So you're really describing something distinct, I think, here from the liberal tradition, you know, when we think about leftist politics in the United States. Can you walk us through the difference between what people call liberal here and what solidarity economics really tries to achieve? And and why is that distinction so important? So uh, as a lapsed Catholic, I tend to think of everything in threes. So let me just do a bit of a triad on your question. I think there's conservative economics, often called neoliberal economics, which is really focused in on the individual and for which if there's a question, the answer is markets. So too little housing, free the markets, they'll deliver. Too much racial discrimination, free the markets because any employer who's discriminatory would wind up paying a premium. It'll be competed away. Now, Several hundred years of evidence suggest that may not be true, but that's the answer. And even when you think about the environment, conservative or neoliberal economics says, well, that might be a market failure, but the way to fix it is with the market's cap and trade. The traditional liberal left kind of answer to any question is the state, which is too little housing. We need to have the state invest in housing too much racial discrimination. We need to have the state intervene. And around the environment, of course, we need to have the state jump in and regulate. Now, I think all of that's pretty important. But I think what solidarity economics tries to do is to answer every question with each other. Too little housing. How do we turn to each other to create social housing? How do we, as residents who might live in neighborhoods that are a bit more privileged, combat the NIMBY attitude that prevents affordable housing from being built in our own neighborhood. Racial discrimination. Yes, we need the state to intervene, but we also need each other to create the experiences where we really are valuing each other and widening the circle of belonging so that you can't have policies of othering that are about race, racism and xenophobia are about saying certain kind of people are not us. And because they are not us, they don't belong in the circle of belonging. And similarly, when you get to the planet, what we're arguing for is kind of a deep solidarity with the planet. You know, the conservative ethos is you can put a price on the planet. The sort of traditional liberal ethos is, well, the problem is that it's underpriced and we need to think more about the future. And the solidarity answer is we should value the planet just because we value the planet and because we think that destroying this heavenly construction would be dangerous to our sense of self and our sense of synergy and solidarity with every living species on the planet as well. So I think it's a different impulse. It's the impulse to turn to each other. I'm really interested in how you think that impulse, those kinds of feelings about solidarity, can actually be channeled into or even be the foundation for real concrete action, or at least strategies for action? There's a whole movement called the solidarity economy. And a lot of that solidarity economy movement is about co-ops, community land trusts, and really a lot about mutualism. One of the things that we think is a little bit different, complementary about solidarity economics as a perspective is that it really says there's four different strategies to try to achieve a better world. One, increase workers' power so that workers can get a better deal from their employers. Two, create alternative economic enterprises 
like the co-ops and community land trusts, et cetera, that the solidarity economy movement talks about. Three, government regulation to prevent the worst abuses, which is what comes from traditional liberal economics. Fourth is to try to reward high road businesses. If you're trying to think about moving to a world that's a post-capitalist world of just co-ops, it's going to take quite a long time. And in the meanwhile, there's going to be a lot of businesses around. And some of those businesses treat their workers right, treat their suppliers right, treat their consumers right, and some don't. And so what we need to do as consumers and as a society is reward those businesses that are doing a better job. And that implies something about ourselves and mutuality and our own sense of the social contract as well. You cannot want Mercedes-Benz wages and pay Walmart prices. You cannot, as a consumer, say, I want to make sure that I'm well rewarded, but I want to make sure I get the cheapest possible product that may have buried in it a set of exploitive relationships with either the planet or with people. And so that's a little bit about where our mutuality, our responsibility as consumers fit in. There are several organizations who I think really practice this kind of solidarity economics perspective. One of them is a group called the Restaurant Opportunities Center, now kind of reformed as something called One Fair Wage, trying to get rid of the sub-minimum wage. I know Syed Saru Jairaman on talking about this just a little while ago. To me, they're a perfect example. They are trying to increase restaurant workers' power and ability to bargain. And by the way, get rid of discrimination in the workplace. I'm sure she talked about that. They are setting up cooperative restaurants that are worker-owned, that are alternatives. They're trying to get government to regulate the restaurant industry to eliminate the sub-minimum wage. And they're trying to work with high-road employers in their high-road kitchens program to try to say, if you're a better restaurant, we'll steer consumers your way. So to me, if you're trying to think about what we can really do over the next 10 or 20 years, having strategies that combine all of those, that rely on our sense of mutuality, that's what I'm betting on. Now, while you're describing us swimming in this neoliberal paradigm, you say that we often fail to notice that we are already acting in solidarity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? One of the things we talk about in the book is about tipping. Because from a neoliberal or traditional economic perspective, tipping is kind of difficult to understand, particularly in a restaurant, you're on the road that you might never come back to. And you're supposed to reward good service, but the challenge is that you know, you may never come back, so why would you tip? And so this is a question that has befuddled economists. Why do people tip? Um, but it does not befuddle the normal human being. We tip because it's just the right thing to do. It's fair. And because we have a sense of mutuality and reciprocity, which is that we would like, if we were in that person's situation, to receive some support, so we extend it. The traditional economics perspective assumes that people are self-interested, and doesn't realize that people also operate out of mutuality. When there's a thing like a COVID crisis, there are price gougers that emerge, but there are also people who rush to work at soup kitchens or deliver aid to the homeless or provide assistance to their neighbors in one way or another. We operate 
out of self-interest, but we also operate out of mutuality. And we've created a system that almost always rewards self-interest and almost never rewards mutuality or a sense of solidarity. And that is what we need to change. Now, how do we change it? Actually, the interesting thing that we make a point of in the book is that just like markets make us selfish, when you operate in markets, every incentive is for you to be self-interested. Movements make us mutual. Movements create a sense of commonality. Movements bridge between communities. Movements create a sense of responsibility to the planet and to each other. And so advice for your podcast listeners, try to figure out what movement you want to be a part of. Because when you're part of a movement, it starts to exercise the habits of solidarity, mutuality, etc. And you know, I got to say, it's also a question of figuring out what kind of company you want to go work for as well. If you work for Southwest, a company it's unionized, it's a company though, its workers are extraordinarily happy there. They're empowered there. And they're the one airline that at least prior to the COVID crisis never went bankrupt. And they've always turned a profit. They've shown that treating their workers right, treating their customers right, et cetera, can lead to a model that actually works. Similarly with Hewlett Packard, corporation, and you can name others that have done right. So I think one of the things that we need to do is, you know, the more you practice mutuality, the more normal it becomes and the more rewards that are delivered. Right. So I always ask this question, and since you just mentioned it, that we should join a movement, what are two things, like two concrete things that an everyday person can add to their to-do list to contribute to that repair of the social contract? Well, two doable things are to pay close attention to what you buy and try to make sure that when you're purchasing something, you understand how it's produced, what conditions it's produced under, and whether or not you're helping to support mutuality or you're helping to support exploitation. That also means frequenting some of your local small businesses, trying to purchase from cooperative enterprises, really paying attention to your role as a consumer. The other is trying to pay attention to your role as a civic actor or a political agent. Are you working with organizations trying to welcome immigrants? Are you challenging folks who are trying to keep affordable housing out of your neighborhood? Are you trying to work with folks to reduce over-incarceration and over-policing and create a different system of justice. The most meaningful thing you can do is what you can do in concert with others, what you can learn from others, and how you can to repeat, not just beat the odds, but change the odds for so many other people. How does race fit into all of this? You know, I think it's absolutely central. And here's a little story about the book, which I think is kind of interesting and telling. The book is published by Polity Press, and we had sent the first draft in. And when it came back, the publisher said, you know, we like it, but you guys are talking way too much about race in this book. And so our response was, okay. And we talked more about race because we figured that if they thought we were talking too much about it, we must not have been making the point about how central it is to creating 
the seeds of division, of racism, that prevent solidarity. The key thing is that racism, particularly in the U.S. society, creates a situation where there are visible losers and winners. And even though all of us might be doing a little bit worse off, there's a way to kind of think you're doing a little bit better and blame someone else for your troubles. From moment one, this country was founded in a celebration of liberty and rebellion from authority and also drenched in racism and exploitation. And those two tales have been part of our country's history with hopefully always moving forward to more liberty, less racism, more freedom from oppression, less exploitation. You know, when people ask me what I celebrate about America, it's America's struggles to get better. And so I think that once you begin to realize that, you realize that racism is very central to dividing people and also very central to some people not being able to do well in our society. And as a result, we need to combat the uh, use of strategic racism, as my friend Ian Haney Lopez talks about, to try to divide folks. Now, here, you know, there's really an important debate that goes on in progressive circles. One is, because racism is used to divide, what we need to do is to ignore it and lift up colorblind issues around jobs and the minimum wage and home ownership and reducing corporate power. The problem is that the other side is constantly lifting up race and racism, talking about critical race theory. Your kids are going to learn that this country was racist. Duh, it was and is. Uh, your kids are going to feel bad about themselves if they're white because of the history of this country rather than feeling informed. And so what I think progressives need to do is to figure out how to center the discussion about race and racism at the same time that we're lifting up common ground issues. The strategy is not to ignore race, it's to inoculate people against the appeal to racism. And you get there by talking about it. Well, I'm in a biracial family. My husband is white and we talk about racism in very different ways at the table, I have to tell you. It's a very strange thing to, to witness in real life. So one question I have for you is, you know, when we had um, planned out this season, there was a moment that we considered titling this episode Revolution because we were thinking we'd look at the question of when it is justifiable to rebel against the state. You know, if the social contract is so broken, which you have just explained and we have discovered over and over again in these episodes, why aren't we having a revolution? It does feel like we're in a, you know, pivotal moment with growing unrest, of course, and extremism, you know, this extremism from the right and the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think we are in an extraordinary transformational moment akin to the 1930s and the creation of the New Deal, and also akin really to the 1980s and the arrival of uh, Reaganism and Thatcherism, which we configured our political economy throughout the world, but in the United States and England in particular. And I feel like we're also in such a transformational moment right now. We are in part because COVID was the 
disease that revealed our illnesses as a society, the racial wealth gap, which meant that some communities really did not have a fallback in an economic emergency, the lack of access to health care, the lack of documentation of so many undocumented Americans, which let them and their mixed status families frozen out from relief, the way in which certain communities bore the brunt of the disease, and also who was an essential worker. Turned out it was not the highly paid manager of a hedge fund. It was a bus driver or a grocery store clerk or a healthcare worker. So COVID was a profound mental shift. It was accompanied by the murder of George Floyd and a big awakening about the persistence of anti-Black racism in the United States and that racist policing was just a tip of a racist iceberg in terms of inequalities with regard to education, the economy, and even the environment. And all of that came on four years of the Trump brutalization of the American spirit, of celebrating cruelty, of mocking people, of xenophobia, racism, and division, and polarizing for political gain. So this was a very, very profound moment. And we're seeing little bits of a big shift right now. You know, the business press keeps talking about the great resignation, the fact that workers are quitting their jobs or that they're reluctant to come to work. Now, that's such an employer perspective because from the employer perspective, people are resigning. But another way to think about it is that in this transformational moment, there's a great awakening. People are asking the question, what's the meaning of work relative to life? How do I want to be treated at work, not just in terms of wages, but living conditions, respect, etc.? And I think out of this great awakening, we're seeing a great rebellion, the wave of strikes, and potentially a great recalibration. And you know, you wouldn't really have predicted it because we're 4 million or so jobs short of where we were in 2019. That's not usually the situation in which workers rebel. But it's a little bit like the 1930s when you had 20% of the people out of work and it was a willingness to engage in sit-down strikes and mass unionization to recalibrate the relationship between labor and capital. So I don't know whether we're in a revolution, but I do think that we're in a moment of great recalibration. But what I want to remind people of is that the 1930s, yes, it brought us the New Deal, but it also brought us fascism. And that's what's going on in the United States right now, because it is hard not to look at what is happening on the right other than fascist impulses rising within the United States. Particularly the Trump phenomena was big man, big lie, willingness to racially divide, simple economic message. And it's what you still see going on in terms of the Trumpist appeals. And so I'm excited that we're in a transformational moment because it means that the stories we tell are incredibly important for remapping our minds for the next era. I'm really excited to be in this transformational moment because the social movements we engage in can shift the terrain to the positive for the next 40 years. I'm really excited about the transformation we're in because I hope to participate in changing the odds to leave the world a better place for my kids and other people's kids. But I'm deeply worried as well because transformations 
and revolutions don't always end well. Well, what you're describing does sound revolutionary in some ways. Maybe not, you know, capital R revolution and, like you said, a recalibration with some concerning storm clouds coming from the right and the rise of fascism or flirting with fascism. Actually, it's not flirting, it's fascism. <laughs> so, you know, as we round out this interview, I have one final question, and that is looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I am talking to you from California. California is a state that experienced demographic change between 1980 and 2000. That's equivalent to the demographic change the United States is going through between 2000 and 2050. In the midst of that demographic change in the early 1990s, we saw Proposition 187, an attack on undocumented immigrants. We saw a ban on affirmative action and on bilingual education. We saw the rise in three strikes laws and criminalization of youth. In many ways, California was America fast forward. But you go to California today, it's leading on addressing climate change. It's depopulating its prison population. We've extended rights to undocumented Californians that are really extensive. We have tried to lead on raising the minimum wage. We've tried to address levels of inequality that are intolerable. California has a long way to go, but at the end of this America fast forward process, we've got the fifth largest economy. We've got movement on climate change. We've got civil society that's not tearing itself apart by race and ethnicity and immigration status. And so what gives me hope is that this journey that we've been part of in California that owes so much to the social movements of California that I characterize in another book called State of Resistance, had to put in that plug. So what gives me a lot of hope is I think I've seen this movie before, and this movie can turn out well, but it requires that we act, that we act in concert with others, that we act to reclaim the commons, to retake the commons, to reestablish the commons for all of us. Thank you. That was really beautiful. Our guest is Dr. Pastor, a distinguished professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity, and also directs the Equity Research Institute at USC. Thank you. Great to be with you. I want to wish all our future Hindsight listeners a very happy new year and thank you all for joining us for season 16 on The Social Contract. We are already hard at work putting together an awesome slate of shows for you in 2022. There's going to be so much to talk about. Elections and voting and the midterms are going to dominate so much of next year. So we're going to bring you conversations that can truly support your decision making beyond the horse race. We'll be talking to more citizen changemakers about how they're building their civic action toolkits, and we always love to hear from you. If there's something you want us to cover or someone you think we really must talk to, email us at hello at futurehindsight.com or just ping me on Twitter. This podcast was produced for Future Hindsight by Sarah Burningham, 
Reba Goldberg, Zoe Sullivan, and Bart Warshaw of the Cocoon Collective. Zach Travis is our associate producer. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.